Twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Leroy. It's October 22nd today. When October 22nd falls on a Sabbath, it's almost impossible for Adventist Christians not to think about the great disappointment. Yeah, that fateful day, 168 years ago this morning, when tens of thousands of Bible-believing Christians of all faiths gathered to meet Jesus at his second coming. Hence the title I've chosen this morning. Last year I told you that story, and nobody tells it better than Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell in his book, Tell It to the World. You can check out this volume from the church library if you missed last year's sermon, or you can listen to it on the Port Townsend live stream this afternoon because it's the story that Colette is telling right now, just a few miles away. It's fascinating, at once heartbreaking and yet full of hope. But this morning... I want to talk to you about a different great disappointment, the one having to do with every single one of us and with every single human being in the world. It's the disappointment that even God has experienced in his own great heart of hearts, and it has to do with what's in our hearts. Back in the 1800s, approximately concurrently with William Miller's preaching that Jesus would soon return, there was a growing secular belief among mankind that mankind was becoming better and better, that human beings were on the upward evolutionary path to perfection, and a flourishing society was just around the corner. It was more than just a hope. It was almost a certainty that the power of education and science and technology and social reform would gradually eradicate moral darkness and unlock the potential within human beings to overcome all setbacks and that the human race would soon reach the dawn of a limitless future. As the 20th century opened, many thinkers and philosophers and artists embraced this progressive view of human potential. But then came World War I with its death and misery and violence on a scale never before experienced. And if that were not enough to shake their faith in the moral human progress and inherent goodness of man, along came World War II which raised the stakes much higher, raised human misery and violence to epic proportions. To say that these progressive thinkers were disappointed is an understatement. By the middle of the 20th century, they were crushed and left hopeless. 
the century which should have witnessed human evolution culminating in perfection had become instead the bloodiest and darkest in all of history. The hope of human goodness had been revealed to be a lie, and the great disappointment is in that truth, that the human heart is not good. In fact, it is fallen, irreparably flawed, and capable of great evil. One look around the world today confirms that empirically. There is a statement in the book of Genesis, a terrible statement, actually, describing God's disappointment with this very same problem, the fallenness of human beings, which he had created perfect in the beginning. Listen to the, what the writer of Genesis 6 says. This is just before the flood. Okay, People had been living on, on earth for a good long time by this point, and what was happening was they were not getting better and better. They were evolving. They were not evolving into a progressive, flourishing society. Uh-uh. Things were unraveling fast. And that's the context for this statement, Genesis 6, beginning with verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was what? Only evil all the time. The Lord was what? Grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Some versions say his heart was deeply troubled, which is a very unique image of God. God with a troubled heart. Imagine that. Human beings are the great disappointment to God. He decided to wipe the slate clean, to start over, and yet he could not bear to lose the people he so loved and loves. And the rest of the book, the rest of the Bible, is the story of God working to reverse that great disappointment, to undo the fallen condition of the human heart. Now, this morning we'll be talking about a specific problem, and here it is. We don't really believe that our hearts are seriously flawed. That's the problem. We're kind of like the progressives of the last century. We really do think that we're not all that bad. In fact, we think we're pretty darn good. So here's where I want to recommend a book for you to read. This is Brant Hansen's book, The Truth About Us, The Very Good News About How Very Bad We Are. I have read and reread this little volume, and I have been thinking about it and just mulling it over for some months now. Some of you have read Brant Hansen. He is very entertaining. He's very easy to read. And what he has to say here is very good, even though you don't want to hear it. The main idea, at least in the first half of the book, is this. We think we're pretty good people, but the Bible says that's not the case. We think we're good, but in fact, we come up short. 
It's critical to know this because once we come to believe this is indeed true, then God can save us. But if we stay in denial, then the gospel really won't have much effect. And that brings us finally to the parable that we're going to think about for a few minutes this morning, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the one that Leroy just read for us. Jesus tells a story about these two guys who go up to the temple to pray. One of them is a very good man, and one of them is not. The good man prays a prayer that sounds like he's quite proud of his goodness. The other man prays in a much more humble way, a way that sounds almost as if he's ashamed of his badness. And we conclude the story is about humility because Jesus says at the end, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But the main point really isn't humility. Humility is a part of it, that's for sure, but it's not the main point. The main point is righteousness and how we get it. And verse 9 backs this up. Luke sets it up. He says, To some who were confident of their own what? Righteousness. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So what is righteousness? The story is about righteousness, right? What is it? People say righteousness means goodness. People people say righteousness means doing what's right. The Greek word translated righteousness here is a very important Greek word, a very important New Testament word, dikaios, which means approval. Righteousness means to be approved, to pass muster, to pass scrutiny, to be accepted. This is something everybody wants, right? Everybody wants to pass review. Everybody wants to be approved from somebody at some level. It's a basic human need. It drives most of our behavior. But in a theological sense, righteousness means to meet the scrutiny of God, to be approved by God, to be accepted by Him. And so it's a big deal. Evidently, Luke says, there were some people who were confident in their own righteousness that they were approved by God when in reality they weren't. And the two men in the story show us two different ways to get righteousness, to get God's approval. One way comes from inside, the other way comes from outside. One way works and the other way does not work. So let's go to the story now. And first of all, what are really most, the bulk of what I'm going to say today here is based on the literary structure. In other words, we want to look and, and see how the story is told. How did Jesus put this together when, when, he, when he said it? And we'll find out that the parable is in chiastic form. And there's a specific reason for that. We'll see it in a minute. And by the way, I'm indebted to Kenneth Bailey, who I've recommended to you before for for his work on the structure of this. Chiastic form, as you know, is named for the Greek letter X or chi. 
And it's a way of organizing ideas to make the story easier to remember and to put emphasis on the main idea. A literary chiasm looks like a pyramid, the bottom half of the X, and it begins with a sequence of ideas or statements that build toward a climax. As you can see here, there are four statements in sequence, A, B, C, and D. And then the ideas are repeated in reverse order so that there is a correspondence or parallelism of ideas as the story unfolds. You've seen this before, but it's good to review. Some scholars don't call this a chiasm. They call it inverted parallelism instead. But I think chiasm sounds kind of cool, so we use that word. But the reason this is important is because the plot or the climax of the story is at the peak. That's where the author will put the big idea. And because it's unwieldy to diagram a literary chiasm in a horizontal format like this, we use a vertical format instead. Same idea, but the vertical format makes it easier to list the parallel ideas. So, we're going to see how the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector is organized using chiastic structure, and we'll pay attention to the climax, which will be what's on top, or in a vertical format, it's what's in the middle. It's what's at the point, the peak, all right? And at the beginning, as we've already seen, there's an introduction that's really not part of the parable. That's verse 9, which Luke uses to set the stage. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. That's the introduction. He lets us know this is a story about righteousness. Likewise, at the end, there's a conclusion that's not part of the story, where Jesus says, where, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the commentary. In between these two statements comes the parable itself. Here's the first idea of the story now. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Two men go up. That's the opening idea. Notice who's mentioned first, the Pharisee. Two men go up, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The parallel idea comes at the end of the story in verse 14, which says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went down justified before God. So here are the same two men, but now they're not going up, they're going down. Their order is reversed, the tax collector is mentioned first, and then the Pharisee. That's a hint right there, that the plot of the story will turn on the attitude of the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Because this is in chiastic form. The tax collector is closer to the center. The Pharisee is farther away. The second idea of the parable comes in verse 11a, which says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Notice that this is a description of his manner and his prayer, of how he prays and what he prays. Now, the NIV translates this as I've read it to you. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. But most translations have it a little differently. That, that word by himself, how do, how, do you, how do you put in there? It should be the Pharisee 
prayed, stood up by himself. He doesn't pray about himself. He prays by himself. In other words, he's not hanging with the crowd. He moves apart. He separates himself from the other worshipers, and we'll see why this is so in just a few moments. So it's his manner of praying, which is by himself, and the content of his prayer. And he prays comparing himself to other people. That's what he does. Now the parallel idea is found in the second half of verse 13b, and this is the manner of the tax collector and his prayer. It says, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. His manner is different from the Pharisee's manner, and we'll see why in a moment, and his prayer is different. But the theme is the same. It's still his manner and his prayer. So those are the parallel ideas. Now here's the third idea. It's in verse 11b. Remember that the Pharisee had begun his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He's comparing himself to other people, right? And specifically now, he's going to compare himself to the other worshiper, to the tax collector. And you know about tax collectors, right? You remember that tax collectors were some of the most despised, most looked down on people of the day, right? They were sellouts to their own people. They were collaborators with the enemy, the Romans. They cheated their own people. And so they were hated by their own people. You know all that. So now the Pharisee is going to compare himself to the tax collector in terms of righteousness or approval from God. And he will do it in terms of what he doesn't do, but what the tax collector does do. Verse 11 says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Some translations say cheats, swindlers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Now make sure you hear what he's not saying here. He's not comparing himself to two kinds of people. One kind being cheats and adulterers and the other kind being tax collectors. He's not saying, God, thank you that I'm not a robber or an evildoer. And thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. The NIV is a little, bit vague, a little bit vague on this, but in the Greek, the idea is clear. He's got the image of the tax collector in his mind's eye as he is praying. God, this is what tax collectors are like. They're robbers, evildoers, cheats, swindlers. They're even adulterers. They are dirty, rotten scumbags. And I thank you that I am not like that. So the idea here is that he compares himself to the stereotype of a tax collector, the poster boy of the day for a bad person. It's like when we think, God, I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not as bad as Vladimir Putin. I'm not even as bad as my next door neighbor. I'm really pretty good. This is the image he holds in his mind of what a tax collector is, and he says, that's not me, the tax collector, the image. 
The parallel idea is found in the first part of verse 13. This is the actual image of the tax collector now. This is reality. This is who the tax collector really is. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would, would not even look up to heaven. Notice that the tax collector also stands by himself. He's apart. He's at a distance. But it's for a whole different reason than the Pharisee stands by himself. Why does the Pharisee stand by himself? It's because in his mind, sin is primarily a matter of behavior. Robbing, doing evil, and committing adultery. Stuff like that. Stuff that other people do. Like the tax collector. That's what sin is. To avoid sin, he avoids doing those behaviors and he avoids associating with people who do do those kind of behaviors. To the Pharisee, sin is something external. It's out there. Okay? It's not in here. And so to stay pure, he doesn't associate with people who do that kind of stuff even when he goes to church. He doesn't go to places where he might come in contact with that kind of stuff or with people who do that kind of stuff. So when he goes up to the temple to pray, he doesn't hang with the other worshipers and especially with the tax collector. He moves off by himself, probably a little closer to the altar. Because he doesn't want to be contaminated. His view of sin is external. And so his view of life is separatist. Stay away. Avoid contamination. And by the way, same thing happens with us. It does. An external view of sin produces a separatist way of life. You've got to look out. Don't go where those kind of people are going. Don't hang with those kind of people. Don't associate with them. If you want to avoid sin, just stay away from people. If you want to think you're a good person, just compare yourself with somebody worse than you. An external view of sin breeds judgmentalism. Now the tax collector also stands by himself, but it's for a whole different reason. He knows he's a sinner, and his sense of unworthiness drives him away. He knows he's bad news. He won't even look up to heaven. Well, what's the difference between these two worshipers? The tax collector understands sin as behaviors. It includes behavior. I mean, sin really does include behavior, doesn't it? I mean, adultery is really wrong. It is. But he senses his inner contamination, his inner fallenness. Because for him, sin is primarily internal. Because that's where it originates. So this is the reality of who he is. The image of the tax collector in the mind of the Pharisee is in sharp contrast to reality. The broken, humble man who stands apart from the rest of the worshipers because he, he feels like he's not worthy. Now we come to the climax. What's on top of dechiasm? It's the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. It's verse 12. I fast twice a week, 
and I give a tenth of all that I get. This is the climax of the story, and we can see it from the flow of the previous verses. Standing aloof, lest he be defiled by the unrighteous people around him, this Pharisee congratulates himself and offers a harsh rebuke of a tax collector who stands nearby. He not only brags about keeping the law because he doesn't rob, he doesn't steal, which are commandments, but he also holds himself up as the quintessential good man by exceeding the demands of the law. He does even more than what's required by the law. And you say, well, where does that come from? Well, here's where it comes from. He says, I fast twice a week. The Bible doesn't say anything at all about fasting except on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the day that the people of God were instructed to fast. But nowhere else does it say you need to fast. It's not a moral imperative. It is a personal preference to fast twice a week. And yet this man says, that's what I do. I fast twice a week. I go way beyond. And so I'm approved. I'm accepted by God. He elevates his personal preference to the moral level. You see that? He makes it a moral issue. He says, I give a tenth of all that I get. And here he also goes beyond the biblical requirement because although tithing is biblical, in the Old Testament it was also limited. Tithe was levied only on grain and wine and oil, according to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But he makes this a moral issue. He says, I give a tenth of all I get. I go way beyond, see. So I'm accepted by God. I am a good man. And he was. He was a good man. But his works are acts of super-righteousness. He is a man who prides himself on his more than perfect obedience of religion. And yet when the story finishes, he finds that he hasn't passed muster. He hasn't made the grade. He has not found approval by God. Jesus says it was the other man, the tax cheat, the adulterer, that went down justified. And that's the same word, dikaios, that he used at the beginning in verse 9. It was the tax cheat that found righteousness. He found approval in God's eyes, and not the Pharisee, who was in many respects a very good man. He was a man who lived a clean life. He was honest. He was generous. And yet, he didn't find God's approval on his life. So this is how the parable is structured. You can see it there. You can see that the main idea is at the top. The good life he lives in his own eyes. That idea stands in vivid contrast to the approval that the tax collector has in God's eyes. The tax collector, he was not a good man, was he? I mean, he actually did swindle his countrymen. That's not a good thing. He actually did collaborate with the enemy. It's not a good thing. He probably slept with a lot of women that he was not married to. And yet he goes home justified. And the question is, how can that be? How can that be? 
Part of the answer has to do with how we understand sin. The Pharisee had what I might call a low view of sin. And here's the thing. If you have a low view of sin, that is, if you think sin is primarily something you do, that it is primarily something out there, then you'll also have a low view of righteousness. You'll think that both sin and righteousness are something that can eventually be mastered. And you may eventually live, end up living a very good life in your own eyes. You'll see yourself as a pretty good person. And that's because you'll find your approval by comparing yourself to a lot of other people. Most of us do this all the time. I do it quite a lot. Just the other day, I was reading about David in the Bible and some of the boneheaded things he did. You know, Bathsheba, Uriah, how he couldn't discipline his own kids. And some of the knuckleheads he had working for him in his cabinet. And I thought to myself, man, if David is considered to be a man after God's own heart and he pulled those kind of stunts, then I'm not such a bad person. I've never done anything like that. You ever think of something like that? You ever think that way? That's what the Pharisee did. He looked around and he said, I'm better than most everybody else, especially dirtbags like this guy. Compared to most other people, I'm really not that bad. And compared to this guy, I'm golden. That's, that's a low view of sin. But if you have a high view of sin, if you know that sin is not only something out there, it's not only something that I do, it's what I am. It's what's inside. That my heart is infected and fallen and that there's a serious flaw in the code. That there is a darkness in my heart so deep and impenetrable that I am not even aware of it most times. But that I am very capable of doing the very same things that I judge in other people. If you see sin like that, you will know that the righteousness that you so desperately need, the approval of God, it can never come from the inside. It cannot. Now before we ask where it does come from, let's just ask a couple of other questions here. Here's one. What view of sin... Do you think most people have today? A high view or a low view? What do you think? Hmm? Yeah, most people have a low view of sin. And therefore, most people think they're pretty good people. Pretty good people. Even Christian people. Even Seventh-day Adventist people. We think we're pretty good folk, generally speaking. And here's where Brant Hansen's book, The Truth About Us, is very helpful. I think it would be good if every one of us read this book before 2022 finishes. That's how many days? 60-some days, I heard somebody say. Yeah. I hope you'll buy this book and give it a try. It's, it's expensive. You're going to pay 15, 16 bucks for it. It's worth it. We human beings have this overwhelming tendency to seriously overestimate our own virtue, probably because we don't think our sin is all that bad. We have a low view. 
In his book, Hansen presents case after case of bona fide research that documents this tendency. For instance, he cites surveys where this question is asked. Do you believe that you are more moral than the average person? How would you answer that question? Do you believe that you live a more ethical life than the average person does? What do you say? What do you think? Yes? No? Guess how many people answered yes to that question? 98%. Okay, 98%. After decades of asking this question, researchers at the University of London write, and I quote here, most people strongly believe that they are just, virtuous, and moral yet regard the average person as distinctively less so. Virtually all participants irrationally inflate their moral qualities, and the absolute and relative magnitude of this irrationality is greater than that in other domains of positive self-evaluation. In other words, he says, we we, we just blow it all out of proportion, irrationally so. Isn't that something? 93% of drivers say they are above average drivers. My wife is not in that group, by the way. She admits that she is a worse than average driver, but I make up for it because I am way better than average. (laughs) Studies show most people believe themselves to be smarter, friendlier, and more ambitious than the average person. I'm I'm reminded of Yogi the Bear, who was smarter than the average bear. And we're more modest than the average person as well. So at least we're humble about it. Even murderers and rapists, even incarcerated people believe that they are more moral than everybody else. Prisoners, when surveyed, rate themselves kinder and more generous than the average person. In his book, Hansen describes all kinds of inherent biases that we use to convince ourselves that we are so much better than we really are. Confirmation bias, selection bias, attitude polarization, hostile attribution, the list goes on and on of scientific fields of study all having to do with how we human beings delude ourselves into believing that we're, be- we're, we're better than most everybody else. We are. Where does this kind of deception come from? Maybe from a low view of sin? Let's pose another question now. Do you think Jesus has a low view or a high view of sin? Low view or how many think Jesus has a low view of sin? Put your hands up. Jesus has a very high view of sin. Sin is a big problem. One day, a rich young ruler came to Jesus with a question. He asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus just cuts him right off at the quick here. Just stop, he says. Before we go anything any further, let's just clear up this glaring misconception. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Did you catch that? Exactly how many human beings can be considered morally good people according to Jesus? How many? None. None. Not a single one. Why is that? Is it because every human being is out there robbing and killing and committing adultery? Of course not. 
It's because every human being has a darkened, fallen heart. And the prophet Jeremiah says that heart is desperately wicked. Every one of us. We really don't believe this, do we? But it's the truth about us. Our actions are a problem. I'm not denying that. They are. But the real problem is with the heart because that's where the actions come from. Do you remember back in Genesis in that verse we just looked at, as God looked over the world which had become so wicked, he didn't say that he was distressed about what the people were doing, although certainly he was. I mean, he had to be. But what it said that was God looked at the intent of their hearts and found them to be only evil continuously. He looked at the heart. That's what was the distressing thing. That's what troubled God's heart. One day, Jesus was teaching his 12 disciples how eager God is to give them the Holy Spirit. This was his disciples he's speaking to. Here's what he told them. If you then, though you are what? Evil. He's talking to his closest followers here. These are not tax collectors. Well, one of them had been a tax collector. But they are his closest friends, the ones who are learning the kingdom of God. And he says, if you then, though you are evil, he didn't say you do evil, he says you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why would Jesus say something like this? It's because he understood the darkness of the human heart. He had a very high view of sin. As it says in John chapter 2 and verse 25, it says there, Jesus knew all men and he knew women too. He didn't need a man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. And Jesus is crystal clear about this. In fact, over and over again, in the stories he tells and in the teachings he gives, he says that unless we come to terms with this reality, we are in danger of being lost. Now the point is, we're really not good people in the absolute sense. Now sure, we say things like, that person's a good woman. Or that man has a good heart. I say those kind of things myself. I say it about a lot of you. But when I say that, what I mean is that such and such a person, they have a character that is truly becoming more like the character of Jesus, which is good. That needs to happen, doesn't it? If we're followers of Jesus, our characters need to be developing. We need to be turning more and more like, like him. But in an absolute sense, we are not good people. We are capable of astounding wickedness. This is the great disappointment. But the sooner we come to terms with it, the better off we'll be. The sooner we come to terms with it, the sooner we will develop the humility that Jesus talks about in the conclusion. The humility that is so necessary. See, humility comes when we understand that our natures are irreparably fallen. Our hearts are evil and capable of great wickedness. That produces humility inside of us. Even when our behavior is acceptable, the motives are less than pure. And the evil that lurks inside spoils everything. We are in desperate need of righteousness, of God's approval. But there is no hope of it coming from the inside. 
It's got to come from someplace else. Where? There are a couple of words or phrases in this story that will help us answer that. The first phrase will lead us to the second one, which clinches it for us. Here they are. It's in verse 13. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first phrase I want you to notice is that he beat his breast. This is highly unusual behavior in the New Testament. The accepted posture for prayer was to have your arms crossed over your chest and your eyes cast down. But this man's arms are not immobile. He's beating his chest. What's with that? Anyway, even today in parts of the Middle East, this is a rare gesture. And what it signifies is this, extreme anguish. People only do this when something is terribly, terribly wrong. But why the chest? Hmm? Well, the reason for beating the chest is given in an ancient Jewish commentary on Ecclesiastes 7, which says, and I quote here, the righteous beat their hearts as the source of all evil longing. And in fact, in all the New Testament, this chest beating happens only twice, here and at the cross where Luke tells us that the multitude went home beating their chests. So what Jesus describes here is a classical Middle Eastern gesture of profound recognition of the truth that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's just a partial list of what's in there. This chest beating is a picture of the depth of the tax collector's remorse. He knows his situation is absolutely hopeless. And that leads us to the second phrase that we have to notice. And here's where we find the very good news about how very bad we are. God, he pleads, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Unfortunately, there's a bit of a misleading translations on, translation on two counts of this verse. The first has to do with the indefinite article a. a. The Greek is emphatic here. It uses the definite article, the. It's not have mercy on me, a sinner, one among many. It's have mercy on me, the sinner. This man is in absolutely no denial about his condition. He knows he is not just some garden variety sinner like everybody else, maybe a little better than most, maybe a little worse than a few. He is the sinner, as if there are no other sinners to compare himself to, as if the only other one he can possibly compare himself to is God. And in that light, he looks pretty bad. And the second, more significant mistranslation has to do with this word mercy, okay? This is not the common word mercy that we find in places like where the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a common word, mercy. This one is a completely different word, and it's, it's a rare word. This is the verb, hilaskomai, 
and it is used in the New Testament only here and in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Well, guess what it says in Hebrews 2, verse 17? It says, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement. There it is. That's the word. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This is the word that has to do with how God saves fallen people by providing a substitute. When this word is used as a noun, elasterion, it means the mercy seat. And you know where that was, right? That was in the most holy place of the sanctuary. The atonement cover that laid atop the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. Where the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial lamb once a year to make atonement for the sins of God's people. So our tax collector here isn't just making a generalized prayer for God's mercy. He's not begging for God just to overlook his offenses, to strike them from the record. He is asking that an atonement be made for him. He knows he needs a righteousness from outside himself. He begs for a substitute, the altogether righteous one who might stand in his place so that he might find acceptance from God. That's what he's praying for here. So I want you to just imagine that scene with me in your mind's eye. The worshipers have assembled at the temple. You hear the blasts of the trumpet and the clashing of cymbals. You see that great cloud of smoke coming up from the sacrificial lamb on the altar. You smell the pungent aroma of incense. You look and you see the tax collector there. He stands afar off, anxious not to be seen, sensing his unworthiness to stand with the participants. In brokenness, he longs to be a part of it all. He yearns to stand in the congregation of the righteous. In deep remorse, he strikes his chest and cries out in repentance and hope, Oh God, let it be for me. Make an atonement for me, a sinner, the sinner. And there in the temple, this humble man, aware of his own sin and unworthiness, with no merit of his own to commend him, he longs that that great dramatic atonement sacrifice might apply to him. And the last line of the story assures us that it does. This man, said Jesus, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Of course, the dramatic atonement sacrifice is Jesus, the one who stands in our place. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And Jesus passes scrutiny. Jesus is approved by God. He is accepted. His goodness covers us. And so we are approved by God. We pass muster. We are accepted by Him. All because of the death and life of Jesus. A righteousness that comes from outside. This is the gospel. 
And I think the more we come to believe the truth about us, the more we will believe and love the gospel. The gospel is available to all who need it. The gospel is effective for all who know they need it. I had a woman meet me at the door of the church after I preached a sermon many years ago in a church many, many miles from here. She was in line to greet the pastor, as they used to do in the old days. She stood across from me in her Sabbath finest with her arms crossed, and she told me that she had finally had her fill of my preaching, and that from that Sabbath on, she and her family would be attending the other Adventist church across town. All we ever hear around here is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, she said. And then she spoke these words. I have never forgotten them, she said. You know, you can't live forever on grace. And for a few minutes, I was pretty hurt. It was an ego hit, all right? It's hard on a preacher when somebody says, you know, I just can't stand you anymore. A lot of people think it, but only a few have the courage to say it. <laughs> I've had enough. I'm out of here. But then that evening it came to me. If you can't live forever on grace, what will you live forever on? Hmm? When we understand how bad we really are, that's when we'll know how good the gospel really is. It is really good news. And that's when we'll know how much Jesus really loves us. And that changes everything.